Um, speaking to Chris Conroy, who um, heads up the Ness Fishery Board. So we're all the way up near Inverness on the shores of Loch Ness. I think is where he's. Speak- well, actually, he's at the he's at the, the the university campus there. But he roams around the shores of Loch Ness a lot because that's uh, when we were last with him a few weeks back. That's where we were. In fact, we were looking at um, eels. Climbing yep. up a waterfall. We were. I still need to edit the pictures. Uh, we have so m- many different things going on, uh, filming and picture taking. That uh, there's a list, a priority list, and unfortunately the eels have gone to the bottom. And I, I have actually flicked through them last week because I wanted to edit a few, and then I ended up editing something else. Uh, so I'm going to edit some, put some up on our Instagram page and probably our Facebook page as well. It's a fascinating podcast, and I think it's going to appeal to people. Um, it's actually got very little to do about fishing as such, yeah. but a lot to do about aquaculture. And even if you're not uh, not someone who fishes, I think you're going to find this fascinating. You'll be amazed, actually, what goes on into managing a system, what is going on in terms of species there, and uh, how, how complex all the interactions are. This, this episode is actually probably good enough if someone was studying uh, aquaculture or to give them some something hindsight. to give them some information. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's, you say that, and I remember um, a family friend of ours with the last fishing oh, yeah, podcast that we did, which we had our um, fishery scientists from our, our local, um, the Eskrivers and, and, and Fisheries Trust here, along with the chairman. And we did uh, a podcast, a very kind of similar conversation to the one we're having with Chris, and he used that as a basis for one of the papers that he wrote. And he got an A for it. And he did. So yeah, because, they, because I remember them asking where he got some of the information from, and he put it from here, and then obviously quoted the, the scientist, and he got an A for it Done. for listening to our show. So that shows you that our show can get you an A all the time. Every all time. the time, yeah. yeah. Uh so yeah, you, you're going to be hear, hearing from Chris. Uh, we won't say any more about that because it, it's fascinating. It, 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 yeah, gonna, we explained, going to straight into yeah, it. Yeah, everything's explained uh, throughout the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, they also talk about the event that they have on in Inverness, I think it is. It's the Salmon... The Salmon Festival. The Salmon Festival, but the end of this all month. the details are in the show. So He's going to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, we... I, we can't tell you who won the podcast from two weeks ago because, because we not, are recording this the we're, same we're not, day. We're not here. <laughs> uh, we're uh, not here. Uh, I'm. We're, we're both in different locations. We are. Yeah. Um, and there's going to be some quite interesting stuff come off uh, the places that we're in. So you'll probably see that on social media in the in the kind of two weeks that we're away. Uh, so the winner will go up on social media uh, and we'll we'll contact them. So sorry for not giving you a mention on the podcast. If, if we remember, I will mention it And if anyone's messaged the show or emailed the show and you've not got a response, you should have an auto-response. Uh, and the reason is because we're here, there, and everywhere. And, uh, and signal's and probably signal's not, not, good not, not the great. I mean, to be honest, I've been in probably more remote places in the world than Scotland, and I've had less signal in Scotland on the West Coast when yeah, we've been, been places, which is ridiculous when but you think I, about it. I'm definitely not going to have my phone on, though, because I'm, I'm in South Africa, so... Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, well, I think now it's your. I might have Europe's it on. Freedom. No, but I'll have Wi-Fi, but yeah. um, from time to time. But I'm not going to have my phone on. So, 
no yeah. one will be able to get hold of me. I'm I'm kind of enjoy going to enjoy the the freedom of no phones ringing. Yeah, in no, the mountains. I, I might turn mine off for a few days as well. Actually, that's a good call. Yeah, one we haven't confirmed this yet, but one of the things I'm going to look at while I'm there is as uh, listeners of this podcast will know, we've been running wilderness hunts in Scotland, and I. Th- there might very well be one space left, but maybe not because in the two weeks that uh, generally we get, so, we get we get quite a few emails after we put out a show when we mention something. Yeah. So at the moment of recording, there's one space left in January, but who knows that might be filled. But try if you if you're still interested in that, shoot us an email. It's first come first serve. But I'm we are going to be looking at because uh, I've been hunting in Africa for well almost as long as I can remember, and we are going to be looking at wilderness hunts there. Yeah. So I'm going to take some pictures. Next we're level stuff. Some, Yep, going to go to some locations. We've got the, the right people for it, and hopefully, I can bring you some info on that when I come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, prize! Prize, yes. So there is a prize to win, which I don't, don't have in you my don't hand. Need to pick it up. Uh, it is a vintage Hornady reloading. Sign. I have one on my wall. I have in, one on my wall in, above in, my reloading yeah, bench. So in our office, we have one, and it is. It's a really cool. Uh, it's like one of those bar signs in a way, yeah, like those like old sign. vintage bar signs. I actually it's made of metal. Ha- I actually have another Hornady. Um, Magnet. No, it's a it's an illuminated horn design <laughs> above my desk, and we just we're not going to send it because it's too big for one. We were uh, supposed to give it away, but it looks too good in the office. The problem is, is that uh, where my office is, I look onto. There's a few houses in front of me. I live in a smallest village in the countryside, and uh, it's completely red when I turn it on at night. So it looks like my house is on doing unsavory things <laughs> on the top floor of my house because it illuminates red light throughout the windows. Uh, and it's that correct red light as well. I've just noticed, actually, Daryl, looking around the office, there's... One, two, There's three, a horny three, magnet four. on there. Yeah. And I think you've got one on your fridge as well. Yeah, I do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, you have the chance to win. And while I'm talking about this, Daryl needs to think about how they enter, <laughs> how, how you're going to enter. Uh, a vintage Hornady sign uh, for this week's podcast. Uh, and you can enter. It wasn't long enough for you to think, was it? No, it wasn't really. Uh, do you know what? I, I really liked... Um, the picture competition and last week's one wasn't it was just a simple yeah. sorry the two weeks ago wasn't it was just a simple case of um, telling us somebody who was on the podcast so let's do another picture one and we're going to do exactly what we did last time which was put it to, uh, put a, it vote, to a public vote, vote. and then we, we won't run a, a picture competition for um, two episodes or something yeah uh, yeah it can be of anything like last time anything that's outdoor adventure dogs I mean for example if you didn't know the winners last time the person that won was just a fishing rod and uh, sunset and the runner-up was a pointer on point mm-hmm. uh, so that shows you the variation in in pictures but there was amazing pictures there was loads and loads of pictures that were entered and we picked our we picked top five, four five to yeah. top four or five so it wasn't even you know all we did was kind of filter out a little bit shortlisted it, yeah. it and so it was completely down to the the public and by the time this comes out the uh, grouse season will be well underway, so I'm kind of expecting some grousey pictures. Yeah, I'm kind of expecting. Because I, I, I will have, by the time this comes out, I will have done my day shooting on grouse, so I, hopefully I will have put up a couple of pictures of my own. Maybe body. some dogs retrieving. Yeah. That would be cool. Just some ideas for you. Yeah, just some ideas for you. Yeah. Uh, so I think that is it. Don't forget that this podcast, since day one, uh, has been supported by the Scottish Association for Country Sports, if you don't know much about them, they're a um, shooting and hunting advocacy organisation. They have a website, just Google the Scottish Association for Country Sports. 
and you'll be able to find out more about them. Or if you go back through our podcast, you will find a couple that uh, Alex Stoddart, the director, has been on uh, very recently and uh, more historically, and um, Jules Stoddart as well, who looks after policy. And I've just you were just saying there about the podcast, it's almost our two-year birthday. Is it? In September. I, th- it? I need to double check. But We're going to have to do we'll, a big prize. We'll, we'll, do, we'll do a big prize and we'll, do, we'll try and do a special show uh, for our two years we've been going now. Yes. So, yeah, Daryl mentioned this at the end of the last one, but thank you so much to everybody who downloads, everybody who has told a friend to go and listen because it makes a huge difference. And the only way that we are able to keep doing this is by having more and more people downloading and listening so that we can get the support to be able to bring you these podcasts with great people and great information yep definitely thank you thank you and enjoy the show chris welcome to the into the wilderness podcast you are the director of the the nest district salmon fishery board we met a few months uh well actually quite a few months back about six months back for the first time uh, but most recently, when we were speaking with you, the, the topic of conversation, which is where I want to start this off, was pink salmon. And uh, it made the news not long after that. Tell me a little bit about what we've been seeing in Scotland in the last few months. Yeah, well, we've seen unprecedented numbers of um, pink salmon right around the coast of the UK and Ireland, actually. And um, also across Europe, there's been um, many more than usual spotted. I should say that because... They have been um, appearing on our coast since about the 1960s. Um, we think a result of stockings into the Barents and White Sea area of Russia. We think these are stray fish that are reaching our coast. Um, up until 2011, I think there were 15 record, recorded uh, catches of these um, pink salmon. This year, on the Ness alone, we've had um, six caught, um, seven seen. Um, off the coast, the nets off the northeast coast of England have had over 200, had them in rivers right across Scotland, and as I say, all the way down as far as the Avon on the south coast of England as well. So, um, so yeah, we're, just see- we're seeing large numbers of them this year. Of course, and it's still actually in the news because one was caught only yesterday on the river right next to us. Right. So, no, it's on the Esk. Yeah, on the Esk, yeah. Cool. yeah fantastic. The, yes. the big the big question that people were asking over that is is it an is it an issue do do are we going to see a problem as a result of the the Pacific salmon running into our rivers here? Well, that's that is a good question. I think the the straight answer at this point is we really don't know. Um, you can look at various elements of the life cycle to sort of try and make an assessment. Um, they spawn earlier than our Atlantic salmon, so there's the unlikely to be competition for spawning uh, habitat. Uh, if anything, our Atlantic salmon will probably spawn over their reds and do more damage to them than they would here, than, than they would to our own. Um, the temperatures they require for spawning as well, um, we're at the upper band of that. They, as far as I can tell, they need about 9.6 to 14, 14.6 degrees, which um, most of our rivers in the UK and Scotland are above that at this time of year when they spawn. Um, However, the Ness is currently within that band. It's about 13 degrees, so there is potential there. Um, there's, there's also potential for competition with juveniles, salmon. Um, however, the pinks tend to, as soon as they emerge from the gravel in the spring, they tend to start dropping back down to the sea, and they smolt as very, very small fish, whereas our own fish uh, spend two or three years in fresh water. So, again, 
there, there, there's unlikely to be any significant competition at that level. Um, the, the only point I can really think of at the moment is whether where they're feeding at sea and whether there could be competition with our um, post smolts, the Atlantic salmon fish going off to feed at sea. Survival is already low at sea, so if there is any crossover in feeding areas, that could be an issue. But at the moment, we just really don't know. And the thinking is that they've basically followed our Atlantic salmon over from where they were feeding to the to the east coast of Scotland. Well, yeah, I mean, basically, the pink salmon doesn't have as good a homing um, capability as our own fish do. I mean, Atlantic salmon do stray to a degree, um, but pink salmon are known to stray a lot more, so they're not very good at navigating back. So whether they're following our fish in or not, or whether they're just literally ju- just finding, trying to re- trying to colonise new areas, um, because there is. They've had a good year and they're in um, high numbers. So again, we, we don't know at this point. Um, so what we what we need to do is find out as much information as we can, so we can inform future management actions. Do you think they'll be uh, tagging them in the future so they can actually follow exactly where they they've been, where they're coming from? I, th- I think that would be quite difficult tagging them because, um, as I say, they drop out at about thirty millimeters long uh, when they go to the sea, and the adults um, die after spawning. So. Um, unless you were to catch them at wherever they were they were spawning, but at the moment I think um, I, th- I think that's it's too early for that. What what they may do is look at trying to look at the genetics of these fish to, to establish exactly which populations are from. So if you took um, a genetic sample from a fish caught in Scotland, in, in theory you can match that to fish in um, Russia or Norway or Finland where these where these populations have, uh, have established. But to do that, you would need to get genetic samples from all of the natal rivers um, so again it's 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 a little way down the line but you know that, that is a that's a possibility but on the just looking at it the good kind of good news right now is is that as far as we're aware it shouldn't affect our fish in our rivers right now because of all the things you've mentioned yeah I mean, that, that's the current thinking is, is I don't think we need to panic at the moment um, but I do think because it's a non-native species it's not meant to be here it's unlikely to be a good thing. Yeah. Um, so what we need to do is is gather as much information as we can about the fish to try and establish, um, or try, to try and do a risk assessment really and, and look ahead. But at the moment, there's no major panic um, because because of the reasons stated. Is this the kind of thing that the government would try and put a bit of funding towards to find out what's actually going on or do you think they won't be interested? Um, I'd like to think they would. Um, we've already started a... a, a sort of an informal working group. I'm, I'm talking to people at the moment from um, the Environment Agency in England, Inland Fisheries Island. We've got representatives from Norway, Finland, Denmark, um, and further afield. Um, and where, where I am here today, the Rivers and Locks Institute at UHI in Inverness, they, they're uh, looking at various uh, options for projects to, to look into this. So um, the, uh, I'm sure there will be some work done. It's still the early stages. I'm sure there will be some research. Exactly how it's funded at this stage, we don't really know. Just trying to discuss what needs to be done as a priority, um, but um, I think going forward you will see some some research into it. Yeah, we know. I, I read in the I think it was in the newspaper a couple of days ago, and you, you just I think mentioned it a few minutes ago that the populations that are already established in Russia and Scandinavia, those populations have done very well this year. They are seeing much more of those established populations, which is, I guess is probably why we are seeing a greater drift over here than we've seen in previous years. Do we know why they've done so well this year, why the populations are just up, generally speaking? It could, it could be good survival at sea. Again, um, it could just be a change in um, 
currents, ocean currents could have washed them over here. Um, uh, the, the truth is, we, you know, we, we're not totally sure. What we do know is they, the populations peak every two years. They, 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 um, they tend to have a, a two-year cycle. So uh, if you look back, as I said earlier, 2011, there are, there are only 15 um, reports from 1960 to 2011. Then there were a number of reports in 2011 when these a slight peak. In um, 2015, there was a, a even more of a peak, particularly on the Tyne, and there were fish reported on the Spain, Scotland as well. Um, and then two years later is this year, so we seem to be having uh, inc increasing numbers again. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in 2019. We get elevated numbers again. If so, it suggests that there may be more regular visitors than there currently are, let's put it that way. So. Um, It'll be, it will it'll be interesting. It will be interesting to see, but I mean, it may just be that they've had a, a, a particularly good year at sea. That, that might it might just be that, and, and there's uh, excess numbers. And these fish, these fish run in huge numbers in, the, in Alaska and North America. I mean, in the, in the millions. So um, when they do well, they do very well. I, actually, for the first time, I, I was doing some shopping the other day, and I was looking across the the canned fish. And I saw pink salmon. I must have seen it a million times before, but never actually clocked it and thought, oh, I know exactly what that is, because obviously we've been talking about it so much. But yeah, you can buy canned pink salmon, which I guess must be brought in from uh, from the States, from Canada. Yeah, I mean, and it's the same with us as well. We've, I've, never, I've never seen one before. I've heard about them and I've heard about reports, but I've never actually seen one or didn't know anything about it. So it's been a very quick learning curve for, for everybody, I think. Yeah, obviously, we're used to just dealing with the Atlantic salmon, so um, just interesting. Just describe them uh, to me, Chris, and, and also uh, once you've finished explaining exactly what they look like for people who, who might be fishing and catch one, what is the advice right now with regard to catching them? So um, size-wise, they average about four pounds. Um, the ones we've been seeing range from between um, about two and a half pounds up to um, about five pounds, the ones we've had here on the nest. So when they're fresh, they're silver, like uh, Atlantic salmon. They have a, a more of a, I would I'd describe it as a tuna-like shape to them. They're, they're, they're short, stubby-looking fish. Um, they have a very, very spotty tail, um, oval spots, large oval spots. Uh, and they have a, like a, almost a, like an olive green color to the, to the, the top of the fish um, with, with spots along um, above the lateral line on them. Um, the most distinguishing feature is the tongue. They have a black tongue, which is very distinctive. Um, they're the key things to really look out for. Males and females are difficult to distinguish when they're fresh run, they look the same. As they mature and go into spawning colours, um, the females um, develop a very sort of mottled, um, greeny, um, pinky um, kind of colour to them and they have almost lines down the side with a very white belly and lower flanks on them. Um, very they look completely different than our, our, our own fish. And the males develop a, a very distinctive hump in front of the dorsal fin, again, same colours olive green, brownie, pink, um, with this white underbelly, but um, you wouldn't miss one if you saw one because they're so different to anything we've got in our, in our waters. Um, so, uh, and if you catch one, um, the advice at the moment is to, um, if you can keep it alive, keep it alive, um, and that would allow um, uh, a, a sort of more closer parasitology or histology check on it. If you can't keep it alive, knock it on the head um, and uh, let your local fishery board know so that they can take samples and have a look at the sex of the fish, look at how developed the reproductive organs are, take some tissue samples so we can use it in the future for genetic purposes. Um, 
And uh, yeah, and that, that, that's the advice at the moment. Retain them and um, call the fishery board or trust. Well, I guess we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, from what you're saying, we would expect to see less next year and more in 2019. More, yeah, more so again. we'll just have to see what happens. Uh, aside from pink salmon, what is your what is your day to day role within uh, the fishery board? So my, my role is I oversee the management of the of the board. Um, I'm basically the C, CEO of, of the, the fishery board and the clerk of the fishery board as well. So I just manage the day to day affairs, manage the team. Um, the board as a whole, um, we are we're a medium sized fishery board in Scotland. We're not one of the big four. Um, we're, we're pretty much smack bang in the middle. Um, small team, uh, and we're responsible for fisheries monitoring or fisheries science, uh, fisheries management, which is where you apply the science, and fisheries enforcement, which is to basically um, anti-poaching operations, etc. Um, so in my job, being a smaller board, I tend to be um, quite hands-on um, in all aspects of that as well. Um, so it's quite a varied job, everything from paperwork, payroll accounts, is, through to actually getting hands on, catching fish, etc. So it's a very varied and interesting job, actually. Yeah, I think there was probably, uh, I know that the structure of fisheries boards and trusts has, has changed in Scotland in recent years, but there was probably a perception uh, in years gone by where uh, the fisheries board, their own only focus was to maximize money for the pri- pri- uh, proprietors of those river systems. But they do, a, a, I, I know that from on our own system here and for, uh, on, on the D and the Spey, there is a huge amount of really great work that goes on behind the scenes that probably a lot of people won't be uh, aware of to help maintain the river system to the highest quality that it is. Maybe you can talk through a couple of those projects that you've got. Although your f- your Facebook page does show off does, your projects yeah. very well compared to a lot of the other boards. I would encourage anybody, yeah. uh, if they're interested in the discussion that we're having with Chris, to go and check out their, their Facebook page. It's just it's Nest District Salmon Fisheries Board, isn't it? That's the Facebook page, Chris. We'll talk about the films. And, yeah, and we'll, talk, we'll, we'll talk about, about your films later, but if you maybe talk through some of the projects, uh, maybe some of the ones that you've been putting up pictures of recently. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's worth sort of um, your first point about, you know, what the role of the fishery boards is. I think in the past, yes, it was very much seen as, um, um, you know, uh, representing purely the interests of proprietors. Obviously, there is uh, still a degree of that. The fishery boards are made up of representatives from uh, of fishery proprietors from across the district. And the focus now is a lot more on conservation, um, conservation of stocks, um, enforcement. For example, these days, I think if you speak to the guys on the ground, most of the work is done to conserve salmon populations. That's our that's our primary primary goal. Um, over the years, with um, I, I think with most rivers or all rivers across Scotland, there's been a decline in catches. There's been a lot more of a focus on conservation now, so there's been less less of a, a less of less effort put. Well, I say less effort, but less resources available for enforcement, and more work going towards um, improving uh, habitat improvements, um, ensuring that we get maximum small escaping from our from our systems. Um, here we work. I should say as well, we work very very closely with the Ness and Beauty Fisheries Trust. We have a, a very close relationship, and most of the projects we do are. Um, joint projects these days and we also um we're, we're not a wealthy board here so we we deliver a lot of work through partnership as well so we work with um uhi here at the rivers and locks institute and the um, sse um, we even work with marine harvest we work with uh, uh, many many different partners to deliver 
um, improvements in, the, in, in uh, our local uh, fish populations. Um, uh, overall, if you look at our um, the, the monitoring work that, that the trust do, they do most of the electric fishing and look at the status of the juvenile populations. Most of the nest system is looking pretty healthy, um, although the catches have decreased. Uh, we've, we've, we've seen um, a long-term decrease in catches, which is pretty much in line with the national picture. Um, we've seen a slight glimmer of hope over the last couple of years where we've seen improvements, but um, it basically suggests that the, the freshwater habitat is pretty healthy um, and there's a, the issue really seems to be at sea. Uh, the fish are leaving but not, not coming back. Um, but that said, there are areas of our catchment that do have issues, and, and one example is the River Gary. Uh, up on it. This is the Inverness Gary, not to be uh, confused with the Persia Gary. Um, and there, there has been a, crash, a massive crash in um, salmon populations. Uh, there's a, a hydro down there with a counter in it, and the, the counts used to be as high as eight to nine hundred fish a year. We're now down to a five-year average of fifty, just fifty fish. So, um, what we've done is we've we've looked into the the the, the issues, there's, there's a number of complex and interlinked issues in that area. And um, rather than point the finger at, point the finger at you know, whose fault it is, what we've decided to do is get together with the key players up in that system and look forward rather than looking backwards and work together to try and resolve the issue. And we've got what's called the Upper Gary Salmon Restoration Project. And partners include UHI, SSE, Marine Harvest, SEPA, uh, and others. And um, involves habitat restoration, um, restoration stocking, and, um, and, and other changes, um, which I can go to in more detail, um, but it's a major project. Yeah, I mean, I carry on. I've seen the pictures from it, and it looks, the scale of the project is quite incredible. So just explain exactly what it is that you're doing there. Yeah, so we've got, um, the, so the populations have decreased to such a degree that, uh we had UHI in 2012 did a study to look at what the issues were and to make recommendations. And they basically recommend, recommended that in this particular situation, uh, restoration stocking would be appropriate. There's a lot of debate about whether people should be stocking rivers or not. We need to make a distinction between what we call enhancement stocking, which is where people are stocking to catch more fish, or restoration stocking where you've got a population that is on its, on its knees, basically, and needs a bit of help. To, um, to actually just exist, which is what the Gary uh, is. So um, there aren't enough adult fish returning there to be able to take, to, to take the usual approach of taking adults and stripping those fish. So what we're doing instead is we're catching the smolts on the way out, um, and the salmon smolts obviously are, are much more numerous, and there are uh, the survival rate at the moment is probably only between 2 and 5% um, um, of, that, of the population returning. So by taking those fish, if we have any issues with them in a hatchery, which is always a risk, uh, if we were to lose them, it's not going to have any impact on the overall population because they would have um, likely not, not returned anyway. So we're taking a small proportion of the smolts, a very small proportion, and um, we're bringing them on in a hatchery over at Drim Sally, which is the Lacarva Fisheries Board, um, and we are bringing them on to adult, um, adults, and those fish are then going to be stripped and their eggs are going to be introduced into the top of the, uh, the Gary system. So um, it's, it's quite a novel approach. Um, it's it's a bit long-winded, but it's the, it's the way we have to do it um, because of the, the, the circumstances on the ground. Uh, and in terms of the risks of hatcheries, we've, we have 
uh, a scientific group that, that, that sits, it's a, a steering group that sits on the project and it includes um, detailed genetic, genetic analysis of all these fish. So for example, um, the fish that we have in the hatchery at the moment are all um, being tested in the genomics laboratory here in Inverness and they're looking at um, whether they are wild, true wild fish or whether they, whether there's any um, uh, Norwegian influence um, or maybe escapes or historical um, you know, um, mismanagement or misstockings um, uh, in, in the past. Um, so we know that they are pure wild fish. We know how closely they are related to each other. So when we come to, to cross these fish, we can um, we can do, um, get the best ma uh, match so we don't cross siblings with each other to increase the genetic diversity. Um, at that level of work, I'm not sure if it's been done in, in Scotland before um, as, as a safeguard. And as I say, um, we have a panel of experts, everything that we do is all is, is approved by, the, the, by them before we do it. So it's really quite pioneering work. It's going to take a while to see the returns. The fish upon the Gary are usually multi-sea winter fish. Um, we have they're usually three freshwater years, three sea winters. So if you think about the time it's going to take for these fish to come back and to then propagate, we're probably talking 20 years before we'll see any real benefits. But um, hopefully I'll still be in the, in the job at that point and I'll, be, I'll get to see the results. It's 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 great that there well yourself and many others have actually gone to the effort of this extremely long term approach, but it's sad in a way that it's got to the point that this has actually had to happen. Uh, but yeah. from your work, it could mean the survival of other rivers if pe if the, what you've done works, then other people can then follow suit and learn that's, from that's, what you've done. That's one of the things we're trying to achieve here is we're trying to document everything we're doing as well to see if it can be um, used in other areas as well. Not just the actual, um, not just the, um, the approaches, but also the partnership approach that we're taking as well. And, um, you know, in this day and age of limited resources, the only way to deliver things is in partnership with others. So, yeah, um, it's, that, that is key across so many different industries. And it might mean partnering partnering with uh, people and industries that you might not normally see as allies. And we, we say this quite a lot in in the shooting world, and we're seeing a little bit of that uh, in the in the fisheries world as well. And I think that's great to see. And that's how you, just like you said, that's how we need to be able to move forward because we can't really change what's happened in the past. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So. Yeah. Okay. A, a amazingly granular level that you're you're going to. What is the issue that we normally see being discussed with hatcheries because it's one of those i mean this is a very specific scenario and i think it for most people it should be able to make sense why you're taking this approach but it's always the thing that that comes up when you talk about recovering a river to the historical numbers put a hatchery in that's it's one of those things that's mentioned a lot and uh, it caused a lot of controversy from sort of both sides of the table yeah, it does. Um, I think I find that people are either pro-hatchery or anti-hatchery. There's no in-between. Um, when in reality, it is it is a management tool. Um, and in certain circumstances, it is an appropriate management tool. However, it is, it, in other circumstances, it certainly isn't. And um, you know, if we were to look at other areas within the nest system where we have seen decreased, decreased uh, salmon catches or adult catches, the juvenile densities in the river are healthy. So if we were to stop those areas, um, we would probably need to catch as many adult fish, sorry, we probably need to retain as many adult fish in the hatchery as are currently caught in, on an annual basis um, to make any difference to the numbers. 
And then by taking those fish out of the system, you're stopping them from naturally spawning. And as soon as you bring anything into a hatchery, you're altering it genetically. Mm. Just by putting it into a different hatchery environment, you're affecting its ability. It's, it, the, the, the young are affecting their ability to feed naturally, to feed on natural food sources. And this is something we find on the Gary Project. It takes a while to get those wild smolts to take a pellet feed. And they have to be hand-fed a mix of wild food, slowly bring the pellets into there. There's it's, it's a lot of work that goes into it. And um, that's the thing, um, what you end up doing is you're taking fish out of the system and then putting a worse uh, product in at the end of it than you would have got if you left them to do it naturally. So the only time really a hatchery would be appropriate is if you have a population that is in the dire straits and is, is in a, a real um, issue. And, and even before that, you should be looking at um, habitat restoration options or other options before you even go to that point. But I think the key thing is, is it's um, the hatchery is not the be-all or end-all, and, and I think where it's frowned upon is if you have a relatively healthy population and you stock on top of that to just increase your catches, which can result in a in um, you know uh, lower catches in the long run. Um, but as I say, I'm not anti-hatchery. I see that there is there, there are obviously I'm not because we, we've got a hatchery program, but you've just got you've got to think about where it's applied and, and try everything else first, which is what was done on the Gary as well. Other other uh, options were tried before we got to this point that didn't and um, didn't work basically. So. Is is some of that sort of mindset change that we're we're seeing now? It sounds to me like it's more of a knowledge thing. We know more about the the fish in our rivers, especially in those early stages before they go to sea, than maybe we knew fifty sixty years ago when there were a lot more hatcheries across Scotland. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think so. I mean. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot more known about the sort of potential impacts of, of, of hatcheries and, and there's a lot more known about the status of our fish stocks than, than they used to be. And it's like I say, on the River Ness, for example, we have seen a decrease in certain components of our um, run on the, on the River Ness, but we were out electric fishing just last week and we were uh, getting exceptionally high densities of fish. I mean, to put, to put it into perspective, to put it in sort of plain English, we would class in, on the Ness if you... We look at salmon fry, which are the, the fish that are less than a year old, and salmon par, which are the, which are the juveniles between um, two and three years old, basically. Um, we look at the densities per 100 meters squared. Uh, an, an excellent density of fry is 50 per 100 meters squared. We were getting densities of up to four to 500 um, per uh, 100 meters squared on the net. That's crazy. Wow. And um, par you're looking at um, a, a good density is probably about 18 to 20 apart. Obviously, there's less of them survive, so the densities uh, are lower. So you get an excellent density of, uh, say, 20. We're getting in, uh, above 60 per um, 100 meters squared. So that suggests that there isn't an issue that we're spawning, and there isn't an issue. We, we don't know what the, the densities were like in the 60s because they weren't, um, they weren't uh, monitored then. So we, don't, we honestly don't know, but... If you compare it to other rivers, they look, the nest looks very healthy. But yet, we are seeing a decline in catches, or we have seen a decline in catches. So that suggests that the problem is at sea. Stocking in the river will not necessarily resolve that because there isn't very much room left in the river anyway to stock into because it's already it's already yeah. full. It's already kind of at capacity. Yeah, yeah. it's a it, that's it's a really important discussion that that I think probably a lot of people won't be aware of of what is actually the holding capacity for young salmon in our rivers and if you're at your maximum capacity if it's possible to measure that then you know that the the issue assuming that they are making it to sea 
you know that the issue is at sea. And I think there's a general acceptance now that the big issue that we face with Atlantic salmon is happening somewhere, and that's, <laughs> somewhere out in the big ocean. That, that's an even bigger headache. It is. Um, we, we have our hands tied because we only have um, a limited uh, remit and a limited area that we can that we can work in and limited funding. So uh, what we try and do here on the net is our sort of um, approach is, is to produce, is to make sure, ensure the system or the net system is producing as many healthy wild smolts as it possibly can. And hence why we, we're looking at um, increasing access to burns that maybe have access issues or the Gary project where we know that we know there's issues up there. We're just trying to produce as many wild smolts as we possibly can. And I think that's all, all we can really do at the moment. Um, and that includes protecting them from illegal exploitation as well, protecting adults, just as making sure as many adult fish um, get to the, to the spawning grounds and successfully spawn as possible. The habitat restoration, which you mentioned, that's something that uh, we've been doing in the in the trust that I'm on here down in the, the Esk- Rivers and Fisheries area. D- just talk a little bit more about the type of habitat restoration that you've been doing, uh, opening up. I mean, one thing that's a, a fairly easy thing to do if it's not a case of uh, there's a, the massive waterfall and you've got to build a pass is just simply Sim- simply opening up small burns that might have been blocked by fallen trees. Uh, I mean, but- p- people don't think about that because it is crazy how far up they go and the tiny burns that they, you know, you see a fully grown salmon in a Way burn. Way up in the middle yeah, of nowhere. And the burn can only be less than half a metre wide. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah I mean, we we have um, we have a programme every, every, every spring prior to the smolts run, our team go out and clear burns of... Um, fallen trees. Not all of them, obviously, because we need woody debris in, in systems. Uh, it's important habitat for par and, and for adults as well during the spawning time. But we go out and we assess, we know where the key burns are. We go out and assess the burns. And if there's any significant blockages for either smolts leaving or adults coming in, then we'll clear them. Um, then we have the more, the, the more sort of, um, the bigger issues, which are things like um, bridge aprons or culverts where you, or, or weirs that the fish struggle to get over. Um, Majority of ours are actually, rather than be completely impassable, they're, um, they're, they're, they're partial barriers, as we call them. They have less of a priority when you look at from the, from the government or CEPAS level because they obviously have huge num- numbers of these issues to address. And any funding they put forward, they have to prioritise. So you have to get the most bang for the buck, basically. But what we're doing locally is if, if, if say, for example, we've got the, the home weir, the home bird weir, which we're working on at the moment, that structure had a fish pass on it, but it wasn't functioning particularly well. It was put in as part of a flood scheme, and it and it, and it um, had uh, degraded, and it wasn't performing very well. So um, the, the the council had asked whether they uh, could um, fix it, and we, in, through discussions, they're incorporating a, a new fish pass onto it. That's how we work here: is we try we try and uh, get as much benefit as we can on the back of other projects. Again, because resources are are an issue. That um, so. Um, hopefully that's being built at the moment. Um, I have a site visit on Monday just to make a few fine adjustments to it. But hopefully that will result in more fish running the home burn, which is the only, only major tributary of the nest of the river nest. So that, hopefully that's good. Um, we've also got issues with when we say habitat. It's also about um, and, and, my, and passage. We've got um, a project on on the Gary again at, at Gary Dam, and we think there might be an issue with smolts being able to get through the dam. So the adult, it has a fish pass or a fish lift for adults to go up, but we think there may be an issue with the smolts getting back out again. So SSE are currently um, leading a project which we're feeding into 
to look at putting fish through the turbines rather than um, through the fish pass. At the moment, the smolts escape through the fish pass and the turbines are screened, but we're going to look at putting them through the turbines. So there's a huge project going on where um, smolts are going to be put, um, or fish, small-sized fish are being put through the turbines to look for damage, to look at survival. Um, and hope we, we're hopeful that that will significantly improve the numbers of fish escaping. Um, again, that's being led by SSE um, with our input. Um, again, another uh, partnership project. Um, so hopefully that, that will be uh, have major benefits as well. So that's the kind of thing we're doing here. The actual physical habitat restoration, we, we're not doing anything specific at the moment, um, hands-on um, you know, restoration type works, because lots of the system is actually in pretty good nick anyway. Um, there are areas that we will look at uh, in, in future they're quite large scale issues that we need to build a case for and build a partnership for, but um, we will get, get onto them shortly. One thing I, I, I read a lot about uh, down south, and, and particularly talking about chalk streams, is the actual fly life and, and their concern about fly life cycles and obviously how that feeds into the, the health of their brown trout populations. But obviously all, all fish need to eat and they're eating insects and other, uh, other items that are f- floating or get carried into the river. What work is being done, maybe not necessarily in your system, but just generally speaking about the actual food source within these rivers for salmon, uh, for young salmon par? Yeah, we, don't, we don't really do anything to do with that, actually, in our area. Um, I know on the common they haven't been looking at uh, nutrient inputs into upland streams mm-hmm. um, um, with regards to trout productivity, uh, sorry, par productivity. Um, a lot, a lot of our moorland heath and upland streams would have at one time been very vegetated, of trees, birch wood. Um, now they're just um, moorland heath, um, and there is the debate that there's been a significant loss of nutrients in those areas because you, you haven't got the the leaves going in, you haven't got the nutrient levels for the insects, associated insects. So they are looking at um, that type of thing. For example, if you get a deer carcass in a, in a, um, an area of river. There has been some work to show that um, if a deer dies, falls in a burn, you'll get increased productivity of par because of the nutrients that, mm. that go into it. So, so the, I think that the answer is that the common are ahead of the game, but I think more and more we're becoming more aware of that at the moment and, and um, potential ways of addressing that. Um, tree planting isn't always uh, appropriate. It is some some circumstances. A lot of the areas are also... Um, Managed um, estates for deer, so you don't want to be blocking that. Set. You don't want to be blocking migrations of, of deer while you're planting trees and fencing them. So okay, yeah. there's lots, there's lots of work that needs to be done on the best ways of approaching those those issues. I know it was something that uh, there was ongoing discussions in one of the upper catchments here about tree planting, and the focus was was a, a couple of fold. It was initially for. Um, reducing the the peaks and troughs of of rainfall and how the river came up and down to help reduce downstream flooding but then the, the knock-on benefit of that being the potential increase in food source and nutrients by having uh the, the sides of the the rivers planted where there hadn't been before but like you said there's always other things which conflict in that particular instance um the rspb didn't want uh, more of the the low ground, which was a, a very wet area, being planted planted with trees because it had a very high productivity for waders. So that would have been encroaching on an area that waders would have uh, would have normally been using for for feeding feeding and nesting. So yeah, there's a lot of things that you have to think about 
as a knock-on effect when you're trying to decide what to do. It might be a, a great thing for for one aspect, but not necessarily for another. Extraordinarily complicated yeah. when you start bringing in other wildlife as well. You you think about it's the fish, and then you got to bring in all these other wildlife as well that you've got to take account for when you're trying to look after one species. And you look at the, the nest system, for example, you have um, a, a special area of conservation for salmon on the Morriston, Lurie Morriston. Mm. You have a special area of conservation for seals and dolphins in the Firth, Murray Firth, and you have a special area, of, I think it's an SPA, uh, a special protection area for goosanders and bergansers um, in the Firth as well. So you've got species which interact with each other, um, so, uh, you know, they have an impact on each other, but they're all protected to the same level. And as I said, this is why partnership work is so important to talk to all the various bodies that are involved in, in it, understand everybody's um, requirements and look at ways to get the, the most benefit you can uh, under the legal frameworks. You know, So it's, it, it, it is, and any habit, habitat restoration projects, it's, again, you need to be talking to all the bodies. And you might find that there's areas where we can do tree planting, for example, for, for salmon, where there's going to, there are going to be benefits from species such as pearl, freshwater pearl mussels, course, yeah. um, the, the, you know, with the um, shading, reducing water temperatures. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it is very complicated, and a lot of our time is spent behind the desk dealing with those kind of issues as well. Just you know, trying to make these pro- build these cases and make these projects work. Uh, people don't usually see that; they um, they only see us on the river. They don't see the, the work we do behind the scenes. So. I forgot, you've got a very large population of uh, dolphins up your way, don't you? We do, yeah. yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a very healthy population out in Murray Firth, yes. Yeah. Chattery Point, probably the most filmed dolphins in the UK, I'd say. <laughs> yeah. Talking about uh, predators, obviously, dolphins are, are predators yeah. of salmon. What is the, the, the predator interaction that we can, uh, we can control and the mechanisms that allow you to control those in your river systems? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the best way to control it is to have a good habitat. So that if you have a if you have a healthy river where with healthy habitat for, for par and smolts, for example, then you um, you can have a, a system where the predation is minimised. Um, uh, we have uh, probably one of the biggest issues on our systems is the is the sawbill um, ducks. Um, so gusanders and gusanders um, and um, they do take a lot of fish, and particularly during the smolt period where a small, a small migration where the, the fish are passively drifting down the river. You have various pinch points where there's dams or weirs where these fish are very open to predation. Um, you can um, have a line, you can get a license to control them from um, SNH. That involves um, regular bird counts on your system to look at the numbers, um, to, to look at the status of the bird population, together with um, provision of evidence to show that there is a, an issue and that the, these birds are having an impact on your fish populations, which can be quite difficult to prove, but uh, we're doing things like smolt trapping on our system where we can um, note the number of bird-marked fish, for example, so we can get an idea of the of the numbers that are being impacted. Uh, and then generally what happens is you would have a license. It's not about it's not uh, about killing everything. It's about trying to deter the fish, the birds, sorry, it's about deterring the birds. So a lot of it is about scaring. So you, um, you would skew have various different scaring techniques to so if they see a person they fly off so they're they're not sitting in one place doing too much damage at any one time and under certain circumstances under license it may be that you shoot the odd bird to reinforce the scaring techniques because they they may get used to you um scaring after after a while so if you fire a starting pistol six times they'll get used to it so then maybe need to reinforce it 
how um, long does the application process take, Chris? If you're, uh, if you know that you've got an issue in an area and the, you have to take it to the the very top level, which is you're going to have to take one or two birds out and and apply for to be able to do that. How long does the process take from you actually submitting the first form or whatever it is that you have to do? Generally, a few months, but um, it's fishery boards who apply and. Um, you know, we do they've done this for a number of years, so we know what we need to do, and we know what information we need to provide, and, and um, we have a good relationship with SNH and the, and the people who determine it. So it doesn't actually take that long as long as you've got the information. As long as you can provide the required information, then mm. uh, that's fine. If you haven't got an issue and the information isn't there, you won't get you won't get a license. Because, um, nobody wants to, to do any uh, damage to these bird populations. We're not in the business of um, you know damaging any other species. We, all we're trying to do is find a medium where you can um, both species can interact you know and um, so so yeah it, 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 it's it's quite complicated but you know obviously that's what we're that's what we're here to do that's what our job is so we we know how to how to approach the, the um, applications uh, I, I probably should have got you to do this somewhere near the start but some people might not fully appreciate exactly the life cycle of Atlantic salmon and what's involved for them to actually successfully spawn and then return to the to the salmon that they were born in. Uh, sorry, to the salmon. The return river. to the river that they were born in. Yeah, so um, that's, a, that's a difficult question. <laughs> no, um, so I should know this, shouldn't I? Really? Um, so basically, the fish, if we start, it's probably better to start at, at spawning. Yeah, that's probably the place to start. Spawning. So if you have uh, adult salmon, you'll have a male and a female, or a, a female and, and a number of males. Um, on an area of, of uh, suitable habitat, which is usually uh, cobble or gravel, say fist-sized cobble or gravel, um, clean, well-aerated um, substrate, which is where the habitat um, suitability comes in. Um, the, the female will dig her nest with her tail, we call it a red, so she digs a depression in the gravel, sometimes quite deep. If you look at the, some of the reds on the nest, they can be almost a foot deep, so uh, a significant amount of work goes into it from, from the female to dig that hole. And then when she's ready, when she's happy with her red, she'll release her eggs and you'll get numerous males come in and fertilize her eggs as they drop into the, into the depression. Um, as soon as she's finished, she then uses her tail to cover up um, the, the, the depression and um, the eggs then incubate. So on the, on the nest system, that will occur anywhere from mid-October through to mid-December. Well, actually, above Loch Ness, the fish spawn mid-October. Below Loch Ness, they spawn... Um, it starts spawning in December and run all the way through to sometimes February. Um, that's to do with the water temperature and, and the impacts of Loch Ness. It's quite a unique system. So the eggs will then incubate until the spring, so April time. The eggs hatch, but they stay under the gravel. The, the young fish are, are now called alvins, and they have a yolk sac, or like a lunchbox as we call it, and um, they stay in the gravel or, um, until they've used that, all, that, all that food in their yolk sac, and then they emerge or swim up and um, at that stage they're about 20 to 30 millimetres long, very, very small fish. Um, they, then become, they then become called fry, and they'll spend, in the nest system anywhere, from two to three, maybe four years in fresh water as, um, as what they call par. Um, when they get to about 120 millimetres long or 12 centimetres long, after about two or three years uh, in the spring, they then start going through a process of change called smaltification, where they, um, their body changes, they start turning silver, and they migrate down to the sea. Uh, they shoal up, and they, 
they basically head out and um, at that point is where they're quite vulnerable to any uh, obstructions or any um, predation etc um, they go out into the coast um, then they some of the fish we think go to the Norwegian Sea and some of the fish go as far as Greenland and um, we think the ones that go to the Norwegian Sea generally come back after a year at sea uh, averaging about four pounds in weight so significant growth in that period the ones from Greenland on the multi-sea winter fish which can come back well over 20 pounds after two or three years and um, the fish then migrate back into the system and the nest is lucky in the fact it has various components of the salmon population so we have fish running we have fresh run returning adults anywhere from November December all the way through till October November time so we have a run right through the year the ones that come in from November through till um, the end of May we call the spring salmon and um, the ones that come through from um, yeah, uh, June through to um, um, mid, um, sort of mid uh, well, through to September we call the summer salmon and then after that we call them the autumn salmon. Um, the fish run up the rivers, they jump any waterfalls, get back to their area where they spawned and then the whole cycle starts again. So that's basically the, um, a brief life cycle of the salmon. What is the, the the survival of Atlantic salmon like after this one? You, we were talking about pink salmon earlier, and you were saying that they they pretty much they all die, do they, after they're the spawned, or is it a very very high percentage die? Is there any returning fish from pinks? So the pinks, I believe, they all die. I believe, yeah. um, as but, I said, I'm not, we haven't had that much experience in that, but I believe so. Yes, but not the case with Atlantic salmon. No, a large proportion do die, but we do have um, what we call repeat or previous spawners, and we do find those on the nest system. Um, I think they seem to be more prevalent the further north you go, um, and we have uh, every we do a scale sampling sampling program. Um, and basically, if you take a scale from a fish, it's like plucking a hair out. It doesn't do the fish any harm. And from that, it has growth rings on it like a tree, so we can figure out how old the fish is, how long it's spent in fresh water, how long it's spent at sea, and whether it whether it's spawned before as well. And um, we've had fish. We usually get two or three a year in our samples. Um, of about our sample size is probably 70 to 100 scales a year, so relatively high proportion. Um, some of which are spawned not well, they, they usually spawn once and on the, on, the, on the way back to spawn for a second time. But we have had fish that are coming to spawn for a third time as well, which is quite interesting. So, um, people do think that they all die, but they don't. Um, the kelp, the kelts as you call them, which are the fish that have spawned, will try and migrate back to the sea, and a proportion of them will come back again. I'm intrigued to know if you can explain in layman's terms how, from a scale sample, you can tell whether a fish has spawned or not. So basically, when a fish when a fish runs into fresh water, it stops feeding. So um, it, what it does is it absorbs the nutrients in its body, and it absorbs the scales as well. So you get what's called erosion on the edge of the scales. So if you if you take a scale from a fish that's fresh into the river, it has no erosion on it. If, you, if it's been in for a month, it'll have a small degree of erosion. If you find a fish that has, if you look at a kelt, which is a fish that has spawned, the scale is eroded right back. So when that fish then goes back to the sea and starts growing again, it, the, the growth starts on the edge of that erosion. So you'll always have a line of erosion showing on the scale. So you have like a, it's like a rough edge within the scale. So you, that's how you can tell it's whether it's spawned before or not, just from the from that erosion. Incredible. Absolutely Learn incredible. something new yeah. every day. Uh, you were also talking about electrofishing earlier. Uh, a lot of people will have heard electrofishing mentioned, but maybe not 
I've been lucky enough to do it a couple of times, actually. We filmed some of yeah, it we when did, we yeah. made the film on sea chart at Loch Marie. Uh, just explain that process and what it is that you're, you're looking for when you're electrofishing areas. Yeah, so what the, the, main, the main use for it is just to monitor the health of the salmon, juvenile salmon populations. That's our key role. So we have a, a number of sites or index monitoring sites across the nest system on the various catchments. And we're looking at, um, we're, we're trying to look at how many fry and par are present per 100 meters squared. So we'll section an area off. The electrofishing gear um, sounds, to, to people who haven't seen it, it sounds horrific, but what it actually does is it, it, it um, creates, it makes the fish swim towards you. It, it stimulates what's called forced, forced swimming. So it makes the fish swim towards your net so you can um, scoop them out and uh, the fish recover within minutes or seconds or minutes. If, um, so it doesn't do them any harm. Um, that allows us then to measure the fish, weigh the fish, count the fish, look at what species they are, whether they're trout or salmon, take scales so we know how old they are. We can determine a huge amount of information just from, from, from that survey. And then it also gives us a density of fry and pop each year. So we can then compare year on year that site to see whether there's been any changes. Um, so it might be that you see a, a major decrease in the number of um, fry present in that site. And if you look closely at the river, you might find that there's a blockage downstream which prevented the adults from getting up there. And that would be shown in your electric fishing survey. Um, and it also allows us to compare sites, different sites in different parts of the catchment. So we can say, is the river nest performing better than the River Morriston or the River Gary. Um, and you can also compare it to rivers, other river systems as well across Scotland. So that, that's why we do that. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of our, that and rod catch data are our main um, assessment tools for the health of the system. Uh, we do also have a couple of fish counters as well, which are run by SSE, um, but we have access to those. And that gives us uh, counts of fish that are migrating up through those dams and it takes a photo of every single fish as well so we, we can gather quite a lot of information from that as well. Uh, we, we've been talking a lot about salmon and we haven't really mentioned sea trout. How does the, the sea trout component of, of your system vary uh, compared to uh, the salmon? I mean, all the work that you do for uh, young salmon is obviously going to help young sea trout as well but is it, is it a bit of a, a different story as to how that population has, has changed over time on the nest? Yeah, I mean, the, the sea trout populations have crashed significantly, actually. Um, the, we used to get a run of around about, well, say a run, we used to have re catch returns of around about 3,000 um, sea trout within our district, and um, last year we had 90 reported. Um, now, there is a bit of an issue there with whether we are whether the fish are being reported or not. Um, uh, pretty sure we're not getting accurate records of what's being caught with regards to sea trout, so it's quite difficult to draw any conclusions from that. Um, uh, however, I think I think um, you could say that there aren't there, there haven't recently been as many sea trout returning to our rivers. That said, over the last couple of years, we have seen an increase in catches, particularly on the on the actual river on the river ness in, in stream, uh, and we have been seeing them in our um, salmon small trapping operations as well. We've been picking up more more sea trout smalls as well. Um, they do have different habitat requirements than salmon, subtly different. Um, the net then the main river ness. Uh, and our main river systems are more suitable for sporting for, for salmon, whereas the sea trout and the, uh, the brown trout tend to sport more in the uh, the lades, the historical mill lades, or the or the small tributaries than the salmon. So um, most of our electrofishing surveys that are done on main river, we see very few trout. But if you go to the tributaries, you see more. Uh, on the neighbouring Bewley, they've had a, a huge increase in the number of sea trout um, 
in, over the last couple of years as well. So it, um, most of our sea trout fishery is actually coastal, so it's people fishing um, within the Morris Berth rather than the river. Um, and I think that has, has an impact on the catch returns as well. Is It's kind of gone out of fashion a little bit, sea trout fishing within rivers. So um, I think that will have impacted on the catch returns as well. But sea trout are complicated. More work needs to be done actually to establish what's going on with sea trout than, than currently is happening. I think there's been a major onus on salmon. Um, so uh, I would like to see more work done on sea trout nationally. I am, I am quite fond of sea trout as a species. They are quite fascinating. And as we know across the whole of Scotland, especially if we look at the West Coast, which was historically famous for the runs of sea trout, there are a lot of instances now where uh, what was very where it was very prevalent it is basically non-existent anymore. Um, I want to talk about eels. Mm-hmm. Now we were lucky enough last time uh, we saw you to go and look at what is the the start of their migration upstream. Now we, eels, t- we, we took some pictures. We I haven't edited them yet, but I did flick through them only yesterday, and, and we do actually have some cracking pictures mm-hmm. of of the eels. And, and you've got some some video on the Facebook page. Now we we just talked about the life cycle of uh, of salmon, a life cycle of eels. Probably it has a a, a big question mark over it because it's not as uh, not quite as well known as as the salmon and sea trout cycle. Tell me about tell me a little bit about eels. They are a fascinating creature, and also what's happened to them because their their uh, populations are not what they were even a few decades ago. No, I must confess, even though I work for a, a district salmon fishery board, I have a soft spot for eels, one of my favourites. I wouldn't say, I'm not allowed to say they're my favourite species, but they're <laughs> my favourite species. Um, in a previous life, I used to do quite a lot of work on eels as well. But yeah, um, eels have an absolutely fascinating life cycle. So they basically, eels spawn, they think they spawn in the Salgasso Sea in South America. So nobody's ever actually seen it, but all the research points to them spawning in, in the, it's near Bermuda. Um, so what happens is the adults will spawn there and then the juveniles will drift in, I think they drift in the Gulf Stream over to Europe. So all our fish come from from South America, which is about 5,000 miles if my calculations are correct. It can take up to three years for the juveniles to get to our shore. And they go through it, when, they start off as a, a sort of leaf-shaped larvae and they develop during that journey into what, is basically a, a crystal clear uh, glass eel, as they call them, probably about 70 millimetres long as they reach our shores. Um, they then make their way into fresh water and they pretty quickly turn brown, um, 70 to 90 millimetres long um, little miniature eels. And they um, distribute themselves throughout the system. So um, what we were lucky enough to see was on the River Morriston was the Elvis um, trying to negotiate the falls on the on the Morriston, which they, they, they do do. And, because they don't jump or they don't swim particularly well, they climb around the edge of the falls. Um, so you'll see a line of these things, sometimes in the hundreds, just working their way up the edge of the waterfall, which is quite impressive, particularly when you've got the salmon jumping at the same time. Yeah, it's amazing. It's quite an impressive thing, thing to see. Um, over in recent years, they reckon the population has dropped, has declined by 80%. Um, I think the class is critically endangered now. Um, I think from what I can see from my colleagues down south in England, there just seems to have been a slight improvement in the, the elder runs in recent years, but um, they're still not, they're not, they're not in, a, in, in a good way at all. Um, in Scotland, um, regulations were brought in a few years ago to um, make it illegal to fish for el- eels at all, so you can't fish on the wrong line without, or, or anything without a scientific license, basically. So they're fully protected here. Um, 
but yeah, they're, they're, they're an um, amazing species, and I think they um, they give salmon a run for the money with regards to the um, the life cycle and, and their status as well. So it's, I mean, that is a seriously long way for things to go wrong for them. I guess that's why they probably spawn in very large numbers. Do, when, I, I, do we think that is it the general consensus that the issue is is at sea a bit like with salmon cross? Yeah, well, I think there's a, there's a number of potential reasons. There are in river reasons like blockages to um, you know, habitat, etc., um, which can cause problems. But I think the main issues, from what I'm led to believe, could be to do with climate change, uh, changes in the Gulf Stream, given the fact they drift. If you have a slight change in the Gulf Stream, they can end up not reaching where they're meant to reach. Yeah. There are various parasites that they have as well, which can affect the swim bladder, um, which is another potential cause for it as well. But um, on the whole, my sort of understanding is it's to do with um, uh, you know, Atlantic currents um, are, the main, are the main impact. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you're right. There's just so much that can go wrong for them on that journey. And they're so small, it's quite incredible that any of them make it, really. Yeah, it, it is... The, the, nature, the, nature is nature is amazing. That's um, not Planet Earth. What was the one that they made was the underwater one? Oh, I watched it. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, uh, Blue sure. Planet. Blue, is it Blue Planet. Yeah, Blue Planet. They, they deserve like an episode in themselves from the Blue Blue Planet, just because their journey is so big that I imagine they encounter a lot on the way. Can you imagine trying to capture, capture that, though, that when they're so small, yeah. like Chris was saying? It's quite amazing that you say that people just are not aware of the migrations that our fish species go through and uh, you could do a whole series on just on the migration of you've got salmon, sea, salmon and sea trout have different migrations, eels, the lamprey we get as well, the sea lamprey, just a, a, we had a, a dead sea lamprey turn up last week, last Saturday on the nest which is probably a post-spawning one which they die after spawning, again they're, they're amazing creatures and um, very rarely see them, people are more interested in these days, there's more footage available but I've been trying to film them for quite a while, and I've not managed to yet. But um, they're there. Uh, tell us, uh, tell us a bit about sea, sea lamprey, uh, Chris, because I've I've seen lots of brook lampreys before, which is a different species. But um, I've never seen a sea lamprey myself, although I've seen the evidence of where they've been attached to salmon. Yeah, when it's the sea lamprey, uh, the adults are about a meter long. They're, they're a jawless fish. They're a prehistoric fish, basically, and they're a parasite. So they they uh, attach themselves at, at sea to things like basking sharks and salmon and other fish species and basically suck the blood and gnaw, gnaw away at them and um, but they they they, um, they 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 like salmon they spawn in fresh water they spend most of the time at sea but they they migrate to spawn in fresh water apparently they, they're meant to spawn i believe they'll come in may may june time um, and spawn it spawn sometime in june july however i've got a feeling on the nest they're later than that difference in temperatures. I've been trying to find them recently and I've not seen any evidence of them spawning but they're definitely there and um, what they do is they create a red in the same way as a salmon although they rather than strictly just using their tail they pick up cobbles with their mouth and, and move them out of the way and if you ever watch brook lamprey which are the smaller um, cousins they're only um, 10 centimeters long or so the brook lamprey they do the same they'll just sit, they'll, they'll sit and they move the stones out of the way then they'll give it a, a quick kick with their tail to remove the spinous sediment and pull a few more stones out. Then they lay their eggs in there, eggs hatch relatively quickly. Then, then the juveniles uh, are called amacetes and they live in fresh water for two or three years in, in silt um, and they have no eyes and they basically create a web at the end of a tunnel and they, they feed on bacteria and algae and, um, and then after two or three years they'll then 
uh, transform. They call it tra- transformers, which always makes my kids laugh. Hmm. Uh, and they and they, um, they turn silver and they migrate to the sea, basically. So, um, yeah, another amazing amazing species which you don't really ever see documented on TV no, too you much. Don't. It, no. It's 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 not a very attractive. It's not a very attractive, no, not attractive. species. You, you can go. That was from the dinosaur <laughs> yeah, period. It looks like it was. But the thing is, I bet you everybody knows what it is because it is like you said. It's the typical fish you see hanging off the basking sharks or or something yes. like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The yeah. brook lampreys, do they have a? Is their cycle slightly different? Because although I've seen them, I actually I don't really know. Yeah, they don't. Um, they basically transform into an adult, and they don't feed. Uh, they um, they spawn and then they die. So um, they don't really do quite as much as the sea lamprey or the river lamprey. The river lamprey also migrates to sea, but it tends to hang around in the coastal areas, uh, and it's smaller than a smaller than a sea lamprey. So there's three species in the UK. And in the nest so far, I've only seen evidence of the brook lamprey and the sea lamprey, although the river lamprey could well be present as well. Are we going to talk about the filming? I was just going to say, before we wrap up, I want to talk about the filming that you've been doing. Uh, As we mentioned earlier, right at the start, you need to go and check out your Facebook page because the footage is fantastic. Tell me about starting that process and the the, the things that you've captured so far. Yeah, well... um, it started by me getting a GoPro, basically, and just um, trying to capture fish spawning last the last spawning season, um, and it kind of developed into four GoPros and a lot of filming. But um, there's a number of reasons we're doing it. it one of the, re- the key reasons initially was to look at the spawning periods on the nest. Uh, a lot of our spawning is in Main River, and the fish are very difficult to spot. So um, we know they're spawning, but we don't know exactly when. You, you see fish chasing each other, but you don't know exactly when they're actually, um, you know, laying their eggs. So we've been, last last spawning season, we monitored various tributaries of Loch Ness and then the main river nest. And we determined that this, what, what we anecdotally knew, but we managed to prove that there's a massive difference in spawning time between the upper system above Loch Ness and the lower system below Loch Ness, which is very useful. Now, you might ask why that information is useful, but if we are being consulted on a planning application or development application, such as um, new bridges across the River Ness, it gives us more information, more evidence for um, having protected periods where they can't work or where they have to do certain things to mitigate impacts. So it's actually very important information that we're collecting. We don't have a fish counter on the lower system, so this is our really only our only window into that that world. Um, a byproduct of it has been Facebook as well. Um, and what we like to do on the nest is we like to be as open and transparent as we possibly can be. Um, we find if people, we don't tell people what we're doing, people will make it up and they think we're trying to hide stuff, which we're not. We're, we're, you know, we like to be as open as possible. So we take any footage. If we get a good bit of footage off, we'll stick it on Facebook. And it seems to, people seem to like it. People have enjoyed it. Um, we've continued doing it now um, into, the, uh, into the actual um, room we've got at the moment. Um, so we're, we're capturing the fresh fish excuse me, <coughs> coming into the system. And that's given us information on the state of tide that the fish are running, um, how they're running, which which bits of the river they're using, whether they're using the margins or the or the, or the, or the centre of the river. Um, kind of, it's interesting to see the numbers that are running and, and comparing that to what people have caught on the day or what the gillies perspectives are of how many fish have come through the system. What we're finding at the moment is there's a constant stream of fish running through the nest. And um, again, Part of our job is, is promoting the nest system for angling. The angling is very important to the local economy. It's important to what we do. 
Um, so we find if we if we show people the fish running, it, it uh, encourages people. To I'll bet it does. <laughs> it, it, it's made me think I should pack up my fishing rod and head to the nest with all the the footage I've seen so, of salmon. It, but th- these um, these cameras that you told us last time, they're all donated. So there, it was either your camera, another colleague's, and they were donated to you. And this was just off your own back, starting to film. Yeah, so, so we're not, as I say, we're not a rich ball by any means, and um, we, we've got um, better stuff to put our money into, quite honestly. So this this is a couple of them of mine. Some uh, uh, someone kindly donated one to us as well, and one of the biologists has lent us another one, one of the biologists from the trust, and. Um, the, the amount of resource that it takes to do is actually very little as well because we've got a knowledge of the system. We speak to the gillies, we know where the fish are, and we literally just deploy the cameras and leave them. Uh, as we're speaking now, I've got two sets of cameras out. Um, they're doing the work while I'm getting on talking to you guys, and then when we've finished, I'll go and collect them and download the information. And they only run for two hours, um, so they're not. Uh, you know, people have, some people have said, you know, well, I've only seen two fish go past today on your film, but that's not necessarily, it's not a quantitative count, but yeah. two fishing hours on a very small field, you, you guys will know that you only get about five or six foot range on mm. these things. Well, the nest is 80 meters wide. Yeah, exactly. If you get two fish, it's pretty, suggests there's quite a few fish running through. So, so yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. And what we'd like to do is, is put it all together and we've basically got pretty much every part of the, the, the salmon's life cycle on film now in the nest and we want to put it together and make a, like an educational film from it just so people can learn a little bit more so um, uh, and, and actually using our own fish as well. So uh, we'll get around to doing that at some stage. You must have one of the best underwater documented rivers in the UK now. I would have thought so. I don't know. I've never really thought of it that way. Well, I've, yeah. I've never seen any I'm not, I'm not aware of it, not, not over such a long period yeah. of time. What about, you must be learning a little bit about the, the habits and nature of the fish watching. I know you had that brilliant uh, bit of footage of the little par who was holding his territory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the par room, amazing. Because it, this is the other thing. You see the number of par you see as well is quite astonishing. If you put a camera in um, in certain areas, you just, in one field of view, I think I had like 15 par, but if they cross each other's territory, they start attacking each other. They're very aggressive. So you'll see them. And if you look into the research, there's various levels of attack. There's like false charges and then there's nips on dorsal fins etc but you can see all of that happening just on the on the cameras it's quite quite amazing um you can see spawning interactions are just is, is incredible seeing the way the fish behave the quivering i've never actually seen the quivering on a male salmon before when, she, when he's caught in the female mm. the quiver shape and then um, you wouldn't see that from above the surface you, you just wouldn't you wouldn't get that and um how desperate they are the males are at the end of the season there's one particular clip with them the male uh, getting quite amorous with the camera stand. Um, <laughs> the males have gone. The male kelps were still hanging around, and you just can't. You just feel sorry for the fish. You know? He wants to do his so, job and go home. <laughs> exactly, but they don't. They obviously stay hang around after the females have left. But yeah. and also looking at, we, we had one interesting fish um, on the river Ness, which was a, a hen fish. And one thing we find the fish tend to once they're going to spawn, they hang around the same area, so you'll see the same fish. If, you, if you're filming every day for a week, you'll see the same fish every day. Um, I was a female with an adipose fin clip uh, where, you know, someone had obviously take, took the adipose fin. And that's um, done with hatchery-reared fish or some, uh, sometimes with smolt um, tracking operations. But we don't clip any of our fish. So this was a fish in the River Ness, uh, a female, a hen salmon. We watched her one day, she was full of eggs. The next day, she was half-spawned. The next day, she was fully spawned. Hmm. And... 
where she come from. And she could have come from the common where they clipped her. She could have come from the spay. But just by having a camera in there, we would never have known that. And that's a story in itself because people think salmon don't stray, but Atlantic salmon don't stray, but clearly they do. Um, so that, that, you know, that level of information is very, it's very interesting as well. So. You, you also um, had a, a pike. I, I was just going to say that. I love that video. It's the one species we haven't talked yeah. about, but that is probably one of my, as much as I, I love Atlantic salmon, that was probably one of my favorite bits of footage that you've had because of just the nature of the way that the pike moves and that really slow stalking motion. If you've never seen that before, you wouldn't know that that's how, even if you fish for them, and which I've done plenty of it, I didn't really appreciate exactly how they stalk their prey. It's, it is, it's incredible, yeah. The, the pike are amazing. That, that particular footage is that they're stalking minnows that are in there. Mm. In the, uh, there's a lot, a lot of wood in that area there, a lot of brash on the bed of the, the, of the locks in the lock. And then, yeah, there's a number of their jack pike, right? well, pencil pike has become a very small pike, but they're just amazing to, to see the behavior. Um, they're one of the most interesting ones at eels, though, because we, we dropped a, a dead fish, a dead um, sardine next to the camera in that location to see whether a larger pike would come and take it. And within minutes, we had a, like a pack of eels arrived. And we literally, from all angles, just a, they obviously honed in on the smell and just started taking it to pieces, which is a, you would never have known they were there otherwise, but they just honed in. Amazing. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, Chris, I'm gonna, we're going to wrap up because I don't want to take too much more of your time, but you've got there's a big festival happening up in your neck of the woods. Just tell people uh, about it and how they can go and see events uh, that are going on because I know you've got there's some films being shown and there's, uh, it, it's a whole festival celebrating salmon. Yeah, so we've got, it's called Scotland Salmon Festival. It's a collaborative project being led by uh, the University of the Highlands and Islands but with partners ranging from Atlantic Salmon Trust ourselves uh, Marine Harvest um, and a number of other organisations are involved in it. Um, it runs from the 29th of August to the 2nd of September. Um, there's a series of evening lectures at Court Theatre and a cinema, uh, a film night showing the latest um, salmon-related films. There's a two-day international salmon conference looking at um, salmon at sea and the issues with salmon at sea. There's speakers coming from all over the world to talk uh, there, and that's here at UHI. And there's also an international spade casting competition uh, I think there's 32 competitors coming from all over the world, um, basically to replicate um, the uh, um, the uh, the, the uh, uh, casting competitions used to have on the nest in the in the old days, where the record, the casting competition was, and um, so the the, di- the distance casting, spade casting record was set. So um, it's worth coming along. It's the second event. The first event was slightly smaller. It's grown. It's going to be a big event. Um, there's going to be a, a on the First and second of September, there's a fair, there's a, a fair at Bush Park in Inverness. There'll be displays in conjunction with the casting competition. So uh, come along. I think everyone will enjoy it. You may learn a bit more about salmon, and you'll meet a few like-minded people. And um, everyone's welcome. Brilliant, Chris. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Uh, hopefully, we'll go, we will see you in person again very soon when we're yeah. up in uh, your neck of the woods. Uh, I think I've learned something I today. Gonna, I've yeah, actually learned quite a lot. I've learned something, and I'm yeah. sure that our listeners will have learned something after hearing you speak today. So thanks very much for taking the time out. Excellent. No problem. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show. Largely underwater, but largely enjoyable. That's where I enjoy spending my time looking at fish, being in the ocean, and 
we need to speak to Chris again when we get more information. Well, we might actually, we're not sure if we're going to have the time, but we might very well go up to the Salmon Festival yeah. that he was talking about and maybe grab some interviews with uh, well, with him again. And then there's a, a lot of uh, leaders in their field speaking yeah. at that event. So we're going to try if we can steal some time to go up and, and bring you something from there. Yeah, no, it's it's great to hear the, the work that's going on, not just with them. It'll be going across the, the is, country. Yeah. Um, and I think some actually encouraging news of the health of our rivers, unfortunately discouraging news on what's happening at sea, but everybody knows that there issue. there is a problem at sea, mm. and it needs to be addressed somehow. So first got to understand what it is exactly. Yeah, I know, I know. That is the big question mark. I mean, I have a theory, but... Are you going to share that theory? Oh, it's just overfishing. Well, yeah, I think there probably is more to it than that. I, I think I it's think a combination of that and also f- I their think food sources. Food sources, I think plastics in the ocean, fishing grounds, mm. uh, the netting. Uh, and then, but I mean, they'll be like kind of, uh, was explained, the ecosystem is, is huge. So if you, one particular species is doing better than the others, because of something that we've changed, the knock-on effect. The knock-on effect is is huge. I mean, for example, you know, if if dolphins have done particularly well and they're breeding in large numbers, they could have a massive effect on on salmon population because yeah, they, they do hunt them. That, yeah. I'm, that's just an example. I'm not saying that that's the problem. Just at all. I just made that up. I'm just I'm just giving a, a theory. Don't hate the dolphins. Yeah, don't. Hate, I I think they're quite cute. <laughs> but when I uh, uh, lived in Australia. I worked in a, a place. Uh, you know, I can't even remember the, the name of the place. You'll know it if you've been there in the Western Australia. It's. I was working there for three weeks. I can't remember. It. And they have two hundred dolphins in the the harbour. Then you can go on uh, tours. And I remember when I was like ten years old, I actually went on one of the tours. And then eventually, when I was an adult, I managed to go there and work there. And I was there for three weeks. And every single day, the dolphins would come and play with me, and the the calves would come and play, and it brought me a bit of joy because I knew that there was generally not sharks about if there was a <laughs> massive pod of dolphins as well. Uh, but yeah, dolphins are cool. I like them. Uh, I can't tell you what you're going to be hearing in two weeks, but hopefully, it's going to be something from Africa. Uh, as I haven't recorded it yet, I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to get, but uh, I'm hopefully going to get some stuff with a few people who are really knowledgeable in certain aspects of, of hunting and conservation. And I think what I'm going to do, but I'm going to see how it turns out, is me and my good mate, um, Dia van der Lange, who I'm going to be hunting with up in the mountains, are going to sit around the campfire with the podcast gear on, with a drink in our hand, and talk. As long as you get the crickets. We're going to get crickets, and it's kind of winter there, so I don't know if you will get crickets up mm. there in the mountains. It might be too cold. Uh, but you're going to hear fire crackling, you're going to hear ice and glass and brandy being drunk. And it should be interesting. We'll see. Uh, hopefully it is something that we can actually probably put out there, but we'll see where it goes. Yep. Well, until next time. 